0: Father in heaven, now we come to your word. Uh, We began our time together seeking you, um, even professing our love for you with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our minds, all of our strength. And so, Father, we pray that our attention to your word would be an expression of love to you at every level our minds most certainly but that all of this would penetrate into our hearts would characterize our very souls would be exhibited through the strength that you give to us so Father help us now uh, to concentrate our attention uh, to hear from you this we pray in Jesus name Amen turn please to Acts and chapter 8 Acts chapter 8 please I want to read again verses 4 through 25. I say again because we read this last Sunday, but I'll pick up a second theme. Acts in chapter 8, please. Hear the word of God. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ... And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip and they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed crying with a loud voice and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying... Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit." And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now you remember, if you were here last Sunday, that I mentioned that there are two things that, for me at least, are startling in this passage. Now the first is what we considered last Sunday, and that is that there was a delay in the coming of the Spirit from the time the Samaritans were converted, that is, believed... And, and when they received the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit fell upon them uh, I said that was startling because uh, it seems as we're reading through the Old Testament that the promise of the Spirit would come when the Messiah came that it would be fulfilled at a point in time and, and that people would live in that, in that in that sphere, that realm that life of the Holy Spirit um, and, and we, we see the promises of Jesus in the Gospels we see the promise of Jesus in Acts 1-8 that the Spirit would come upon them we see it happen on the day of Pentecost Um, and and thus we would expect from that time forward that when people come to faith uh, that they would receive the Spirit that he would fall on them just as he did on that day of Pentecost that there would be a baptism in the Spirit as Jesus had promised and people would be his witnesses powerfully be his witnesses uh, all over the world and uh, and, and, and thus as we are walking through the book of Acts in chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 uh, we expect all those of whom it is said they were added to their number that they also received this baptism in the Spirit, that they received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had fallen on them. We have no indication that he hadn't, no other other word to say that there was a time delay or any of that. And now we come to Samaria and we see that Philip clearly preaches the true gospel of the kingdom. Um, We see that they believe, we see they're baptized, and yet the Spirit of God had not fallen upon them. And we wondered why? And Luke, who writes this book of Acts for us under the power of the Spirit, doesn't tell us why. He just reports the facts. And the facts are that the Spirit hadn't come yet. But Peter and John, the apostles in Jerusalem, uh, hear about what is going on in Samaria. And so they send Peter and John. The exact uh, reason they sent them, we're not quite sure. Luke, again, doesn't say exactly why they came. Curiosity, check it out. Because they knew the Spirit hadn't fallen? We don't know. But when they do come, they pray, they lay hands on these Samaritan believers, and they receive uh, the Holy Spirit. The best we could figure as we, as, we, as we study the passage, as we study the Scripture, as we read throughout church history, as the church fathers and others throughout history have understood this passage, is to think this. that Because it's so unusual to have this time delay between conversion and the, and the Spirit coming upon those who believe that it is perhaps for Peter and John that the spirit was delayed not because of the Samaritans or not because of any defect in Philip's preaching but rather for them so that they would see that these Samaritans a group of people that Jewish people hated and were hated by it was reciprocal it was was a mutual hatred uh, that they too could be one's who could be converted. And once converted, they would receive the Spirit as well. And once converted and receiving the Spirit, that they would be one together. Because in doing that this way, God not only furthered the gospel, but He brought unity to the church at the same time. God is never interested in having two churches. He just wants one body of Christ. And so when people who are natural enemies come to faith, then the gospel does what no government and no law can ever do. That is, he can bring these natural enemies together. And he must. Else it's not the gospel. Else it's not the truth of Christ. And so we have to think and realize, and again we've worked our way through this, but just to review that when those people come to faith who are very different than we are, in fact, we may have something against them. In fact, we may not like them. Whether it be a political dislike, whether it be a cultural difference in dislike, whether it be ah, that they're Uh, richer than we are, and we've never liked that group of people, or whether they're poorer than we are, and we've never liked that group of people, or whether they're better educated than we are, and we've never liked that group of snobby educated people, or whether they're less educated than we are, we've never liked those people who can't uh, agree their verbs and their their subjects. Uh, And so, uh, no matter what that is, whether they're Democrats or Republicans or Communists or whatever, when they come to faith in Christ... Then we're one. And God joins us together as His people to love each other. And so we need to realize that, right? And not only that, we need to realize that when the Spirit of God comes upon us, it's visible in the sense that there's something recognizable, there's something different about us as people who believe and, and have the Spirit of God, therefore. There's something recognizable, it's this joy, it's this peace, it's this character that develops in us that people know the very presence of God is with us and thus we know that it is ours therefore in the course of our lives as the Apostle Paul puts it, to be filled with the Spirit continuously, to walk in the Spirit, to to keep in step with the Spirit, to live by the Spirit and thus we realize that we must continue to pray that God will fill us and in our praying that God will fill us It isn't so much that we're we're worried about being emptied all the time and so he has to keep filling us so we're emptied, but we're asking him to enlarge us. Remember that prayer from Psalm 119 where the psalmist prays, I will run the way of your commandments because you will enlarge my heart. And that, you see, what happens when the Spirit of God continues to fill us. He increases our capacity. To know him and to love him and to live by, through, for, from him. Right. So that was the first thing that startled. So I'm less startled now when I read Acts chapter eight, at least to that point. But the second thing that startles me is this man Simon. He's a curious one. Um, It's not so startling that that when again Philip and John come, that uh, that he's amazed by them because he's a magician. And, and the scripture tells us here that, that he was a magician of great notoriety. You get the sense that, that everybody knew him. You get the sense that he was highly respected. You get the sense that people were amazed by the things that he could do. And you, and you get the sense, perhaps, even that he was quite wealthy, that he was good at it. And, and thus, that not only did he have position among them, but he had power among them and wealth among them and all of that. Um, and so here he was, this, this man... Simon. He was amazed at what Philip did. Luke tells us that he believed and was baptized. Now, Luke doesn't give us any great commentary on that until we get get later. And and if, if if this passage ended in verse 17, then there wouldn't be anything to it, because verse 17 simply says, then they, Peter and John, laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And we would think that Simon was part of that, and we would say, cool, this this magician, this occultish. Pagan, uh, uh, was converted, received the Holy Spirit. What a great triumph of the gospel. But Luke doesn't end it at verse 17, because the story doesn't end at verse 17 with Simon. Something else takes place. Notice verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone upon whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity and Simon answered pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me and so you get the impression that Simon's faith, Simon's belief and even his baptism are spurious at best you wonder what's what's with him because the rebuke, the response of Peter is, is incredibly harsh in fact, it comes in the very way that an Old Testament prophetic curse would come. First, he sees the very arrogance of Simon to think that you could buy this gift of God. Not only was he amazed at what Philip had done and the miracles and all of that and the power of, of, of that Philip seemed to have over these demons and so forth, but he was also enamored with the fact that when Peter and John came, it appeared to him that by their hands, that they had the authority, they had the power to lay hands on this group of people. And from them would flow this Holy Spirit that gave this power. And so so Simon's no doubt thinking, that's great, I want some of that, I want that. In fact, if I don't get that and all these other people have the power that Philip had, then it puts me back a bit. So I not only need that power, but I need the the control of that power. I need to be able to be the one through whom... That power is given. Now, for Peter and John, that's preposterous. Because they know it wasn't their hands. These were the same hands they had in their pockets walking from Jerusalem to Samaria. So they knew it wasn't their hands. They knew that the laying on of hands was just their way of identifying with this group of people saying, come, gather around. Because they knew that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit by anybody laying hands on them. They would know that others... ...who had come to faith hadn't received the Holy Spirit... ...because of their laying on of their hands. In fact, Peter would experience it in two chapters... ...when he goes to the household of Cornelius... ...and he's preaching and the Holy Spirit comes on them... ...and he never touched them. And so it isn't their hands per se... ...and it isn't them because they know... ...that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a gift. It's the gift of the Father... ...to those who believe. And so they knew it wasn't them in that sense... They knew that if they took money for it, they'd be stealing because they didn't have the authority even to sell that. That was a God thing. That was something God did. The Spirit of God comes as his own sovereign, his own sovereign will. He's king, and so he's God. And so they knew they couldn't sell it anyway. But this is what Simon wanted. They would see that arrogance. But you see, not only that, it showed that he had no change of heart. Peter sees that, and he says for him, Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. He realizes that in all of this, really, Simon's heart was never changed. Simon wants exactly what he always wanted. He doesn't want God, he never did. What he wants is position. What he wants is the ability to amaze What he wants is his place in that particular city, amongst that group of people. And he realizes that he can't have it unless he has what he thinks Peter and John have, which is the authority to dispense the power of God. Because Simon was known as the one who was indeed the power of God. And so now in order to keep that up, he's got to get it some way. And all that he knows is, let me give you money, let me me buy this. Because that's how it was done in his culture. As a pagan magician, he would buy magic spells from other magicians that would go through, and it worked for him. And so he he wanted to do that with Peter and John. And of course, Peter saw right through his heart. And again, you get the sense there was no change of heart. There was no change in Simon. He really didn't believe. He was baptized, which we won't go into that. So any of you putting your faith in your baptism, just flush that. But uh, because he was baptized. Somehow he convinced Philip to baptize him. I know there were a lot of people, but you know, he went through the new members' class or whatever it is they did in order to say who gets baptized, and, and he got through it. So no blame on Philip here. But he said he believed. And there was no evidence at that point. To the contrary, but now you see there is evidence to the contrary. His very heart is being played out uh, in front uh, of the people, this, this very pride that he has. And just, just notice the kinds of things that, 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 that Peter is saying uh, to him. Verse 20, Peter says, May your silver perish with you, J.B. Phillips. And again, not to be indelicate, but J.B. Phillips translates the very intent uh, of this expression in Greek and he puts it like this may you and your silver go to hell harsh words then he says you have neither part nor lot in this matter that little expression part nor lot means you have no partnership in the gospel you have no lot meaning you have no ownership in this matter. It's here. You're there. Those are real estate terms, really. And so to have part and lot in a piece of property means that you have partnership, ownership of that piece of property. You have every right to be on that piece of property. But if you have no part nor lot, it means the property's here and you're trespassing if you come on it. And so he was over there in regards to the gospel. He was over there in regards to the Holy Spirit. So Peter's saying, you're outside of all of this. And we're now just realizing it. And then he, he tells them that he should repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. And he uses this little expression. He says, if possible, that God will forgive you. And, and we kind of bristle at that because we think, what do you mean, uh, if if possible, um, and really, he's saying, if possible, because uh, this is a, uh, a curse, this expression that you have within you, uh, the gall of bitterness and in bondage to iniquity. In Deuteronomy uh, 29, <clears throat> Moses, uh, speaking on behalf of God, uh, puts out this expression. He says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike the Lord will not be willing to forgive him but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven and you get the sense that this is how Peter was understanding Simon's position that his heart hadn't changed that he really didn't want God what he wanted was what he always wanted and worse than that He now wanted to use God to get what he always wanted. And you get this, you know, you can just hear the tumblers and Peter's mind begin to click. And he's thinking the curse of Moses. Repent. And if it's possible, God said in the old covenant he wasn't going to forgive that kind of a person. But if it's possible, then perhaps God will forgive you because what you're living is in the stubbornness still of your own heart and and we understand that we understand the very essence of that it's his his own pride and we don't speak that as a word of judgment from us to Simon because we know that we know that's true in us and we know the only one who can conquer that pride is God himself by a change in the disposition of our own hearts we know that that very pride began way back in the Garden of Eden because it's the arrogance that says, I can be like God. I can be the one who determines what's good and evil, what's right and wrong, what the course of life should be. And, and I'll use anything, even God, to achieve the course of life that I'm laying out. That's that kind of pride. And that can't exist in the presence of God. C.S. Lewis, in the, you know this book, Mere Christianity, calls it the great sin. Let me just read a bit. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are, are mere uh, flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind, because it says, I am. He goes on, does this seem to you exaggerated? If so, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that that the more pride one had, the the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I want it to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Pride is competitive by its very nature. That's why it goes on and on. If I'm a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival, my enemy. The Christians are right. It's pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means Enmity. It is enmity that is hostility. Not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people and of course as long as you're looking down You cannot see something that is above you. And you see, for Simon, he was always looking down. He was always saying, I have to be up and you have to be down. And if you have that power, I have to have it because if you have it and I don't, you're up and I'm down. And so he had to buy it, he had to get it, he had to use whatever way he did because his point wasn't to know God. His point wasn't to submit to him. His point wasn't to humble himself before God and worship. His point was to get what God had so that he himself could be worshipped. Jesus, of course, knew this better than the rest. In John in chapter 5, Jesus in speaking to a group of proud people, he said this, verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Well, Of course. He says, if what you're seeking is the glory of others, then you've placed yourself in the position of God. But he said, therefore, how can you ever believe in the one who deserves that glory, who is the glorious one? It's it's impossible. So the apostle Peter writes, humble yourselves therefore before God. And then he goes to explain why. He says, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, God doesn't resist the proud because he's in competition with them in some way. In fact, Lewis puts, puts it like this. and You'll have to follow this. I'll unpack it a little bit. He says, we, not, we must not think pride is something God forbids because he's offended at it, or that humility is something he demands due to his own dignity, as if God himself was proud. He's not the least bit worried about his dignity. Now, when he says that, we know that God is infinitely worried about his glory, as well he should be. But he's talking about his dignity, saying God isn't, God isn't worried when he's hanging around with us that somehow we're going to diminish his glory. It's sort of like, you know, the queen is never really worried about her dignity when she's with us, you know, because she's, she's the queen. And so she's dignified by definition. So she's not worried about other people because of who she is. And God isn't worried about it. It's like if I were standing in the presence of... Michael Jordan dribbling a basketball, he would not be intimidated. You know? Just because that's not the point. But if I think for a moment that he and I are on any kind of level or that I'm better than he is, then after he's finished laughing, he would tell me how unhealthy that is for me to think. Right? Right? so that's his point. He says, the point is, God wants you to know him. Wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will, in fact, be humble. What is humility? Humility is who we are when we're conscious of being in the presence of God. I mean, that's just... Who we? I mean, how could you be anything else? Think of all the experiences in Scripture where God shows up, either in the form of the angel of the Lord or in himself as the Lord Jesus, and people see it. And Peter was in the boat fishing, and he saw Jesus. He said, get away from me, I'm a sinner. When the Apostle John sees Jesus on the island of Patmos, he falls down as one dead. When the prophet Isaiah sees God high and lifted up, he falls on his face and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. I'm, I'm blowing up, I'm falling apart, I can't stand in the very presence of God. How can I be this? How can I, how can I do this? Lewis goes on to say, that we are to be humble, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about our own dignity which has made us restless and unhappy all of our lives. He's trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible. Trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we've got uh, ourselves up and are strutting about like the little idiots we are. I, when I'm talking like this, I always like to read somebody else. <laughs> See, we have the tendency to be like little children, two-year-olds behind the wheel of a parked car thinking we're driving. Now, to other two-year-olds, it looks cool, but to any adult, you just sort of smile. But if you're a 40-year-old and you're sitting behind a parked car thinking you're driving, it's sad. And it was Simon, in his case, was sad. Because he really thought that he could harness the power of God. He really thought that he could have authority over the power of God. And it showed that he really wanted only what he really what he really wanted. And you see, one of the great dangers of the church and in the church, and one of the great dangers for us as Christians and us who share the gospel, is that it's possible for people to like what they see as the fruits of the gospel and come for the fruits of and not for God. John Piper wrote a book recently. I would encourage you to read. I won't read it to you today. Anyway, it's a short book, only 180 pages, and a very small book. But sometimes short reading, short writing, makes for long reading. But the title of it is this, and I want the title to stick. And the title is, "God is the Gospel." He's the good news now we get a bunch of cool stuff with God when the Kingdom of God comes, when the power of God comes, when the rule of God comes, it means his authority takes over into the context of our lives, and He brings himself in, in his rule into the sphere of our existence and brings us into His, and we receive things like forgiveness of sins. And we've received like adoption into his family. And, and, and so we can live without guilt. And, and, and we can live in the peace of knowing we belong to him and the security of knowing that he answers our prayers and, 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 and all of us and all of that. And he brings us into a community of believers. So we can have help and companionship and, and share life with and, and all of that. And, and, and all that's really good. But we must want God. Not to want God is like marrying someone for their money or marrying someone for the position that it will bring to your life. To really marry means you, you need to want that person and to only want their money or only want the position or the prestige that comes from being married to them or only want what they can do to help you in the context of your life. is sad. It's not real love, it's not real marriage, it's using that person to get what you've always wanted. It's not entering into relationship, it's not submitting yourself to them and loving them and honoring them. So it isn't that we just come to God for the stuff. The stuff's great, the stuff's necessary, without the stuff we die. But without Him, you see, there isn't any of this stuff, there isn't any of that God Himself is the gospel. For instance, if your marriage is in trouble, it's very easy to hear that the gospel means that God will save your marriage. And so you hear that and you say, okay, I'll go back to church or I'll go to church or I'll hang out with these Christians. I'll read the Bible about about marriage so that my marriage gets better. But if all you want is for your marriage to get better and you don't want God... You'll be very disappointed where he takes you. Because he may take you into a place of difficult, sacrificial love that you never imagined. Because that's not how you define marriage. That's not how you define happiness. You say, I know what happiness is, I know what I want. Some people say that God brings happiness, good marriages, therefore I'll go get God so I can have a good marriage. That means you're your God is your marriage, it isn't God, and you don't really want him. And you'll be utterly disappointed. There was an article, fascinatingly, in the journal World, July 30th, I think was the date. The title, uh, I forget the title of the article, you can look it up online. But But the article was discussing a book that had been written, the title of which is this, Why Good Things Happen to Good People. The exciting new research that proves the link between doing good and living a longer, healthier, happier life. Now, the authors, one of whom uh, is a professor of bioethics at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine, set out to show that there is a direct connection between altruism and physical health. A 2005 study from Stanford University, for example, found a link between volunteerism, volunteerism and later mortality among the elderly. That is, if you volunteer, if you're a good person, if you do all these good things, you're likely to live longer. A large survey of teenagers in Vermont found that those who volunteered were less likely to engage in risky behaviors. And a British study uh, uh, that the authors call truly remarkable uh, found that neighborhoods that had high rates of volunteerism were found to have lower rates of crime, better schools, and happier, healthier residents. So you know what one of the dangers of the church is? This is a healthy place. Generally speaking, if you've been abused in the context of your life and you enter into a church, you're likely to find a place of safety. If you want volunteerism, if you want to be a do-gooder, come to church. You can change diapers in the nursery. You can feed the poor. You can go on mission trips and help them build things. You can, do, you can give money. And we'll encourage you and all that. And you might feel happier. In fact, you're likely to. That just makes sense. You're likely to live a healthier life, a less risky life in certain places, and to be around a group of people who are healthy and happy and all those kinds of things. But that isn't the gospel. And so if you come for that, and you miss God, you miss being in His presence, You miss being humbled by him. You miss seeing that your issue is the fact that you're really spiritually bankrupt, as Jesus put it. That you have really nothing to offer other than your rebellion against him for all these years. And that what you need is life from him. And you need life his way. And you need to submit to him utterly. Then you've missed it. And we see this. We see people coming to church for various reasons. Their kids, they have kids, so they come back to church. Why? Because I want my kids to grow up in church. Why? Because I want them to do drugs and I don't want them to have sex. Well, I don't either. But that's not the gospel. And so, if you come for that, there'll come a time when church will get wearisome. Church will get burdensome. Remember, there was a group of people, Jesus had fed 5,000 more than that, probably, that's the number we have of men who were there, fed 5,000 people with just a little bit of, little bit of food, and they were, they were amazed by that, and so they came back after Jesus, and Jesus said, I know you're right, I know what you want, you want bread, but if what you want is bread, you've missed it, that's not the gospel, I'm the gospel, I'm the bread of life, what you need is me and all that I am. And when Jesus began to explain what that meant, he says, you've got to eat of me, and you've got to partake of me, and you've got to live in me. Then the scripture said that many who were his disciples, that is, who had been his so-called disciples, that had walked around with him, that they actually then left him. And he said to his apostle, apostles, he said, you can leave too. He said, how can we? You have the words of life. They got it. They got that it wasn't about the bread. They said, if you never give me another piece of bread for the rest of my life, I can't leave you because I get it. I see that that's who you are. When Jesus told the parable of the soils, I like it better than the parable of the sower because it's about the soils. And there was some stuff in a couple of those soils that kept the gospel out And there was a definition of the heart. There were rocks and thorns in that heart that never left, that were never submitted, that were never cleared out. And so the gospel itself was never able to take root because they never really wanted the gospel. On the rocky soil, what happened? Well, it appeared as if the plant grew up real quickly. But but what happened? When the heat came, it died. Why? Because there wasn't any root, because there was something in the soil that kept it from growing. And in the same way, you see, if, if in our heart are rocks that we treasure and value, that really define who we are, the gospel can't grow, it won't grow, the rock's got to go. Now, it may look like you get it for a while and it springs up with joy, even, because your marriage is in trouble, so you go to church, and, and for a while, things seem to get more fixed and it's just better. Or your kids are in trouble. You go to church, they start hanging out with some other kids. Get out of that crowd and and things seem to go better. But when God calls you to himself, and says, humble yourself before me and follow after me, you go, oh, no, 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 that's not what I wanted. I just want to have a nice little happy marriage. And I got the white fence, and the wife's happy with me. We did a vacation this year. She doesn't yell at me anymore. I'm fine, thank you very much. All this other stuff I don't really want. Then what happens? Or if there's thorns in the way. The cares of the world, the things of the world, what you really want is the, is the prestige and the power and the position and the money and all of that that the world offers and that's really what you're after and so going to church helps that for a while because people think you're a good person, you go to church and, and you clean up your act a bit and you're more moral than you were before and people go, that's impressive and you start to give away stuff and you start to help other people and people go, that's really impressive. But when the real call of God comes, I "I want you to humble yourself before me and admit your sin and admit your need and and come to me to love me and to honor me. And maybe people aren't so happy about your altruism anymore and maybe it's becoming a struggle to be that person. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want the gospel. I don't want God. I want to be honored. I want riches, and now you're demanding more of me, and I don't have those riches anymore, and it's taken away. So that isn't the gospel. So it's easy to look down on Simon and say, what a jerk. Then we have to look within and say, why am I here? What is this all about? And God says, I want you to come. I want you to come to me. I want you to see me. I want you to understand who I am. And so he tells us about himself in the scripture and he gives us pictures of himself and and all of that and experiences with him. But not only that, of course, we see, the scripture tells us the very glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember that was the night that Jesus was betrayed? He was with his disciples and we were about to see Jesus in his fullness and he said, This bread, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the scripture says that he took the cup. And after giving thanks, as he did with the bread... He gave this cup to them and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And you see, as we think upon Jesus, first and foremost, what do we see? We see God. We see the perfect holiness of God. Where does that send you? Does it send you to say, Oh, I'm that good? I can stand with Jesus. Is that cause you to bow? Does that cause you to kneel? It that cause you to fall on your face before it? We see his perfect righteousness. We see his perfect justice. But not only in the midst of that, we, we see his perfect mercy and love. Because he comes to us and he says, here, this for you. And where does that take us? Where does that send us? This is, the gospel is me. Come to me, all you who are weary and laden. And I'll give you rest. If you come for only rest, you won't get it. But come to me. And in knowing me and experiencing me, you'll have rest. But you won't run around and say how great the rest is. You'll run around and say how great I am. Because it's me, Jesus says, that you want. The gift of God. me let me ask you to bow your heads not going to manipulate you here no fancy smancy just want us to pray Father in heaven I want to lay myself before you and I desire for you and by your spirit to look into my own heart look into our heart's Individually, collectively, even as a church, and reveal to us why are we here? Why do we claim the name of Christ? I pray, God, that while we're thankful for the blessings, we're thankful for the promises, we're thankful that all of the promises are yes and amen in Jesus, that you are the one we desire. We desire to know you and to be known by you. We desire to live with you. And God, we desire this prayer of the prophet to be true of us as well. That though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fruits the, the field yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. For God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer, He makes me tread on high places. And so, Father, I pray that for whatever reason may be the felt need for which we come, that you be the real reason. And even though all the stuff, is taken away that still we rejoice in you father as we began the question was raised whom do we seek we said we seek the Lord our God the question was raised do we love the Lord our God with all of our heart we said yes Do we love the Lord, our God, with all of our soul? We said yes. Do we love the Lord, our God, with all of our minds? We said yes. Do we love the Lord, our God, with all of our strength? We said yes. I pray, Father, that be true. I pray that you would work that in us. And now I pray, God, that you would take this bread and this juice and you'd set it apart. It's just bread and juice. We know that. But we trust that Jesus himself is here. And that he will meet with us here. And so we pray that even as we come to this table, even, even as we think upon him, that as we come by faith, we will meet him. And in meeting him, in seeing him, in knowing him, we will know your majesty, and your glory, and your mercy, and your justice, and your grace, your holiness your righteousness your kindness and that we would then realize that you are our portion and we desire nothing other than you please meet us here we pray now in Jesus name amen I remind you that this table is not the table of grace evangelical Presbyterian church but it's the table of the Lord and he invites to it all those who desire him and him alone. All those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight and are without hope except by way of his sovereign mercy. All those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, that is, as the savior of sinners. As the one who is Lord over life and death. As the one who's lived for us as the one who's died for us. And all those then who desire to live as one consistent with that confession, consistent with being a follower of Christ. So if that's true for you. Let me invite you to come. These two sections can come down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do in your head, may the 4th of July go off. And you say, I desire to love you with all of my heart all of my soul all of my mind all of my strength please come